Welcome to the Monthly Ideas Exchange podcast, brought to you by ASX, the heart of Australia's financial markets. Each month, we'll connect you to a range of leading industry experts who'll give you a look into the finance industry and deliver valuable insights. Hear about important market events, industry research, tips for your own market research, as well as innovative products to help you diversify your investment portfolio. Your host, Martin Din, has a passion for all things investing and is a major player in the investment product game, having assisted in the release of over 150 investment products since 2013 with ASX. Join him as he explores investment opportunities beyond just shares, from ETFs, rates, LICs, M-Fund and much more. Joining Martin today is Anastasia Anagnostakos, Business Development Manager in the Investment Products Division at ASX. She is responsible for sales, distribution, product optimization, and education of the ASX Investment Products Suite and has over 11 years financial markets experience across the UK, Europe and Australia. Hi everyone, this is Martin Din and welcome to another episode of the Ideas Exchange podcast. Anastasia, thanks for letting me rope you into this episode. So tell me, what are we covering this time? You barely wrote me here, Marty. Thank you firstly for the invite. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. So with International Women's Day on the horizon, it seems like a timely choice to discuss on the Ideas Exchange the importance of investing for women. We should highlight that this isn't a once a year discussion when International Women's Day rolls around, but an everyday one that we need to have. Today, we are joined by one of the most recognised women in Australian investing and our good friend, Gemma Dale from NABTRADE, where we'll chat about some of the challenges women encounter when it comes to investing, how women can overcome these obstacles, why it is important to invest, and some tips for new investors and much more. Well, this sounds very exciting and that it looks like it will be a very eye-opening conversation. So let's jump right into it with Gemma. Hi, Gemma. It's so great to have you here today. And uh, thank you for joining me and Anastasia. Absolute pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks for being here. Gemma, first of all, before I kick off, I actually wanted to congratulate you on reaching your 126 podcast episode. Your podcast actually has been a great source of inspiration uh, for me. So well well done on that. Oh, thank you. It's, um, yeah, we started it a while ago. I'm a big fan of podcasts. I, I prefer to consume ideas and content that way. And so I was dying to start one. And, uh, and it's been more fun for me than anybody else, I think. So as we approach International Women's Day, I thought we'd do a very special episode about a topic that I know Anastasia and Gemma are very passionate about, the importance of investing for women. I might just jump right into it, into our first question, Gemma. In our most recent ASX investor study, we found that women were less confident than men to take on riskier investments, such as Australian shares and ETFs, and more likely to hold most of their money in term deposits. Why do you think women have been more hesitant than men to jump into the stock market? Uh, Such a complex question, but a really good one. So there's a few good reasons for it and some less good reasons. I think the critical thing is 
women are 50% of the population, right? So they're not a homogenous group. People have very different reasons for doing things and women are the same. There would be many reasons why different women will choose to undertake one kind of investing behavior or another. So not all women are the same. Obviously you can't generalize across the whole cohort, but there are some characteristics women have that are quite, quite unique. Um, and also some factors that that are far more typical for women than for men, even though they might apply to some men as well. The obvious reason why many women are less likely to take on risky assets is they have less money to risk. And it's awful and I hate talking about it, but it's a fact. So many women have not worked uh, throughout their lives. You know, older women may have had to leave the workforce when they had children, when they got married. They may have taken time out to have children voluntarily. They may have worked in lower paid employment. They may have gotten divorced and ended up with no assets as a result. They might be sick. There might be a whole variety of reasons, but we know women have less money just in general, right? They earn less and they earn less for shorter periods of time. So women have less money. And when you've got less money, you are far less likely to risk it in something that you perceive to be volatile or where there's risk that you'll lose it, right? If your primary source of income is the age pension or you're earning $25,000 a year, you don't wanna be investing in an asset where things go up or down 20% each year. That is far too high risk for you, right? So a term deposit might be appropriate for someone in that situation where they don't have a lot of capital. They're unlikely to earn more capital in the future or to be able to generate more. And that would be true for women or men, but it's far more likely to be women for a whole lot of historical factors. So that's the, I guess, the good reason. It's not a good reason, but it's, it's a logical reason why women would be less likely to take risk. The confidence side is a different one. So the psychological reasons that are unrelated to people's uh, actual financial situation. So you might be earning great money, doing really well, have plenty to invest and still prefer a time deposit. That's a different situation. And many women appear to prefer tangible assets like property and property is prohibitively expensive to invest in in this country. It's very, very difficult to get into and saving to buy a property is obviously quite challenging for a lot of people. If you have a three to five year time frame to save for a property again, a term deposit is the appropriate place because you don't want to risk your money. But uh, that's a long, long time to be earning nothing. So it's it's a tough one. For a lot of women, there's a really good reason why they're not willing to risk their money. If it's simply psychological barriers about the perceived risk of entering the market, that's a bit of a different scenario. Well, we've touched on a few different reasons there for why women perhaps put off from investing in asset classes such as shares. For the reasons like psychological, those psychological reasons, Gemma, how can women overcome the obstacle of taking the plunge? Yeah, that's a great question too, because I think it's really important. You know, there's a lot of historical reasons why women would have avoided risky assets, but you know, there are more and more women who absolutely have enough money to invest and do want to grow their wealth and do want to approach investment markets, but it can be quite intimidating, right? It's a very male-dominated industry. If you watch any of the business channels or look at any of the sort of mainstream media featuring investment professionals, you're looking hard to find a woman in that cohort. It's mostly blokes in suits. So for women, it can be quite off-putting. Um, often when I'm at an event, often ASX events, I get women coming up to me saying, thank God you were there because you were the only one that we could look to, right, to have a conversation with someone who looked and felt like us. 
So the things that I would suggest if you are thinking about this, or even if you're not thinking about it, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you are definitely thinking about it, but it's it's understandable that getting into investing is intimidating, right? It's a fairly opaque universe and you can look at it and go, oh my God, it's just numbers and lines on charts. And I've got no idea what's going on. One of the reasons that women uh, ironically tend to do really well, and I know we're going to talk about this later, when they do invest, is they're less likely to approach markets thinking, I'm an investing genius, I'm going to be great at this, and then blow all their cash, right? So we know that men are prone to overconfidence, women are prone to underconfidence. Again, massive generalizations, but there's really good data around this. So if underconfidence is something that you know you're dealing with, you look at this market, you go, it's very opaque and it's complicated and I can't deal with it, or I'd like to, but I'm scared. That particular feeling may well be the thing that makes you a better investor than another male of your age, particularly if you're young. Young men, very prone to overconfidence. Young women, less so. Good. Means you'll probably do your research and make fewer stupid decisions, right? So the one thing I will say for all investors, male or female, is that investing is a hell of a lot easier now than it's ever been. The amazing range of low-cost, accessible products that give you a simple way to approach investment markets. And that's really appealing. So Muddy, you were talking about ETFs, for example. And I know in this podcast, you'll talk about exchange traded funds and how they work. The ASX does great research and also great education on this. So there's an amazing amount of really high quality education out there for anyone who wants to start investing. And if you are worried or concerned that there's too much risk or you're just not ready to take that first step just availing yourself of that research is a great way to break down the barriers a little bit at nab trade which is the business i work in or an online trading platform we've just launched something called the academy which is designed to take you through a fairly straightforward educational process that will give you insight into some of this stuff like what is it how does it work you know, a short video where someone just explains what something is and how it works and how much risk you're taking and all that kind of stuff and there are infinite resources of that type out there that are dramatically different to what was out there 20 years ago right you used to have to go and buy a book there were probably five books to choose from <laughs> and you if you wanted to buy a share had to find yourself a stockbroker and call them up uh, I've told this story a million times, but the first time I bought a share, I had to look up a stockbroker in the Yellow Pages. There will be people listening to this who don't even know what the Yellow Pages is. And you imagine at the age of 18 just how thrilled they were to take on a young girl ringing them up, going, like, we'll find some guy in the copy room to take this call because clearly this girl has no money whatsoever and no idea what she's doing, uh, which was 100% true but changed over time. Yeah, it was really intimidating back then, whereas now you can do the research in the comfort of your own living room or on your phone on the bus, right, and you can educate yourself, learn a lot, avail yourself of insights from amazing high-quality investors, you know, great speakers, people all over the place, and they will give you ideas for free. And then you can go and open a trading account and place trades for, you know, a tenth of what I paid 10 years ago. You know, life is better if you want to become an investor, whether you're male or female. So there's a lot to be said for being alive and trying to do it now. The internet's 
a wonderful place these days, isn't it? You can get a lot of things for free that you used to have to pay for. Um, but one point that you made as well is that when you made your first trade, you had no idea or you had very little idea, as did I. And that's one thing that really I highlight as important is because we've learned by doing, people might look at you or me and say, well, you work in the industry, but back then I didn't have that knowledge. And I'm assuming you didn't have your knowledge. It would have been 18, 19 years old when you put that first trade on. So for me, the highlight there is that uh, you learn by doing as well. You just got into the market and you, you gave it a go and you started small and you go from there. You're absolutely right. That's just, it's absolutely imperative and that's the power of compounding, which is true for all forms of investment. But the one that I think resonates most with Australians is you look around your suburb and the 65-year-old who has no assets is living in a $2 million house because they bought it 40 years ago, right? And they made one good investment decision and paid it off. And that good decision, it probably felt terrifying for them 40 years ago when they bought it, right? They probably felt sick at the size of their mortgage. And now you're looking at them going, you lucky sod, you've got a thing I could never afford. Well, in 40 years time, that will be you, but you have to do something first. And you might well choose something brilliant, like buying CBA or CSL, you know, 15 years ago, or you might choose something really stupid, but you learn from it. And the other thing you've pointed out is you start small. The lovely thing about shares is you start small. With property, you start big. So if you get it wrong, it's really going to hurt. Um, with shares, you start small and you can afford to make some mistakes over time if you're starting young. And that learning by doing thing is just absolutely imperative. The one thing that doesn't change is that you've got to take action in order to have something happen. That's right. And if you're not in it, there's no way that you're going to earn a return. So you do have to be in it. But that's the, uh, that's the main takeaway that I got from that as well, because I can vouch for my first trades they were placed at the height of the market in 2007 just before the GFC hit and I'm sure I've sent, shared this sentiment and it was a horrible trade at the time but it didn't put me off it just taught me what to do next time and the imperative thing also there is that you hold on you learn that you have to hold on you're not there are people out there that are day traders or they like to in, enter and exit positions and make money quickly out of positions but Overall, that's not what we're trying to do. We're investing and investing is a long-term game. If it makes you feel any better, I placed my first trade the week before September 11. So you can imagine what an event of that size did to the share market. Nothing good. Uh, so, so my first experience was losing money like literally a week after I'd invested. We both lost money, but we're both still here. It was a good long-term investment, but in the first week I was like, what the hell have I done? It's a... It was not fun at all. It was a horrible move, but it is what it is, right? And you just keep going, you learn from it. And that's why ETFs, especially if you don't have the financial knowledge or you don't know what particular stocks you would like to buy, ETFs are a great move because you don't have to have any stock-specific knowledge to get into the market. You can just have exposure to the market. It is amazing how 
many problems new investment products have sold. So an ETF is amazing to me in that we've got plenty of traders on Mavtrack, we've got plenty of investors, but there are always people who go, this is complicated and I just don't want to have to make the decision. And there are also many others who know the research tells you that generally speaking, the fewer decisions you make in investing, the better off you will be. So an ETF is one decision, literally, I'm going to buy this particular ASX 200, for example, or S&P 500 or whatever it might be, I'm going to buy it. I'm probably not going to trade it. I'm just going to sit on that thing and I might accumulate more over time. And the data tells us that you may well, you are very likely to do just as well, if not better, than if you try to pick your own stocks, if you try to pick a fund manager or an LIC manager, for example, who's going to outperform the market. Outperform is difficult, right? The stock that I bought in 2001 was a good company. Did not predict 2001, <laughs> the um, September 11 incident, right? So just because you bought a good company does not mean everything's going to go your way. Uh, a lot of us didn't pick COVID or the equine flu and all the other things that can happen. So ETFs are fabulous. If you don't need the anxiety of trying to pick it and pick everything right, there's a lot to be said for just outsourcing that decision and going, the market has decided for me what I'm going to buy. I'm going to get the top 200 or the top 500 or whatever it'll be, and I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, that, that's some really great tips. That ETF, I'm just going to share a little secret. My first ever trade was actually in an ETF, so I was actually quite successful. <laughs> and, you know, that my main... Oh, go away. Oh, stop showing off. <laughs> Sorry, maybe it wasn't, it wasn't as popular back then, but uh, that was actually my first investment. And the, and the reason why was, was like what you guys were saying um, was that, you know, I didn't know what stock to pick. So I took a direction of the market and that kind of helped me solve my problem. I've actually forgotten about it. I don't know how long I've, I've, I've had it for, but, you know, I think that's a great tip. And I think the one point that really resonated, um, you know, both from yourself, Gemma and, and Anastasia was just, there's now trading apps that only require a few few dollars to um, to put into, into the app. So when the market goes down, you don't have to panic. And I guess when you start to feel comfortable, you can put more more money in and then build your wealth that way and build your confidence that way. So anyways, I think we've talked a lot about investing. So I think our listeners are probably thinking to themselves, why do I even need to invest? So in your opinion, Gemma, why do you think it's so important that women learn about investing? I think everyone understands that long-term, you want to have some wealth behind you, right? Your salary won't continue forever unless you intend to work forever. And we also understand now that the job you currently do may not exist in 20 years' time. Unless you're a nurse or a doctor or in a, in a profession of that type, there are plenty of other professions where things are changing very rapidly. Your career is likely to change dramatically. You want at some point to be able to leave the workforce either voluntarily or involuntarily, and have assets to rely on. So the big thing in Australia is home ownership. It gives us a really strong sense of security and so on. But in addition to that, most Australians have superannuation. It's a wonderful thing. We are literally the envy of the developed world with our superannuation system. So we get uh, foreign governments and foreign treasuries in particular coming to us going, how did you develop that thing that is amazing? That is such a source of wealth for Australians going into retirement that takes pressure off the public purse, but also gives people a lot of confidence and supports the economy. So you probably have investments anyway long-term and superannuation is a wonderful way to build long-term wealth. You can't touch it till you retire. 
that's probably going to be age 60 plus. So plenty of us would like to have some money before then. <laughs> that's, not just, uh, that's not just going on daily expenses. I think most people understand why building wealth matters and they want to build wealth. A lot of people don't understand how or they feel it's going to take a greater sacrifice than they're willing to make at this particular point in time. It's something I'm going to think about tomorrow or next year or when I'm older or when I've paid off my mortgage or when I've got a better job or whenever. So I think most people go, yeah, I'd love to be sitting on a million bucks and just enjoying the dividend. But the gap between where they are now and the million bucks is so great, they kind of put off the decision. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good point. You know, I think a lot of the, the times uh, people forget the objective of investing sometimes. And the objective of investing, at least uh, in my view, is that it can be used to help you achieve your long-term goals. So income, right? You're working to make money. Investing, on the other hand, that money is, you know, that's doing the work for you. And I just wanted to share a pretty interesting example um, I did. And this was a bit of research I did before the podcast. And I did a hypothetical. So just bear with me. There's a bit of numbers, but trust me, it's exciting numbers. So don't, don't leave yet. <laughs> I did this example. Hypothetically, if you held all your money in a savings account, you would earn about 3% per year. So that's according to the Money Smart website. Now, if you held all your money into an ETF um, that said, that say tracked the uh, Australian benchmark, the S&P ASX 200 index, you'd earn a net total return of 7.6% per year. Um, that was some data according to Bloomberg. Now, for a $100,000 investment, assuming just no regular deposits, I would be $73,000 worse off in 10 years' time and $250,000 worse off in 20 years' time if I chose to hold my money in a term deposit, as opposed to holding my money in this ETF. And, and the funny thing is, you know, you mentioned compounding, Gemma, this number actually grows exponentially over time. So for our listeners, I think one thing that I can suggest to you is try using the money smart compound interest calculator, just to compare some investment returns for different investments, just to see the impact of compounding. Really, I think that for me, it, it's, it's a game changer. It's, it's so powerful to see it visually, the impact of either small differences in return or small contributions over time. So I remember doing this when I was young going, okay, although I did it back to front, I had a, I had a little special thing that would show me uh, how much I needed to save each month to have a million dollars by the time I was 30. And it was more than my total salary. So that was upsetting. But it turns out 30 is not the end of your life, right? Time goes on and, uh, you know, you can get there eventually. I think that compounding, if, if you're not into numbers and many people aren't, Seeing it visually can be very, very powerful. And there's some fabulous tools that will graph it for you and show you how that works. So you talk about exponential numbers and everyone goes, ah, I know what you just said. But if you go online and have a look at those calculators and those tools on the Money Smart website, it's fantastic. It will show you the impact of those differences. And to be frank, 3% per annum in cash these days, that doesn't exist, right? So the difference is dramatically higher than you just said like dramatically higher. I think the term deposit rate for one year is around 0.35% or in finance talk, 35 basis points, which is not basically non-existent. Yeah, nothing. You're getting nothing. And it's depressing if you are a saver, right, which is intentional. But you have a choice between spending and investing. 
that opportunity to invest is is really powerful and if you haven't already shown yourself what the long-term impact could be go and have a look and don't get depressed if you're not a millionaire by the time you're 30. I couldn't agree more with that in terms of or Australia just generally has a love for property so we equate investment with property and wealth with property and shifting that mindset sometimes it's quite hard because people do believe that they need a certain amount before they can get into the market. Understanding that effect that compounding has and actually seeing it, okay, if you're not good with the numbers, there are calculators like the Money Smart website, like we said, that you can go and actually see it. And when you actually see it for yourself and you realise what you are missing out on, even as we speak, that should be a catalyst to do something. As we know, the Australian stock market has been the best performing asset class over the last 20 years, not property. So few people really appreciate that. Property is just so deeply ingrained in our psyche as uh, the way to make money. And people are so passionate about it. And there certainly are many people who have done extremely well out of property. But the challenge for so many people is it's prohibitive to get into. Levels of home ownership are dropping fairly dramatically in this country. And if that's you, the idea that you just have to throw up your hands and opt out of wealth, because the real difficulty is if you're not contributing to some asset that's going to grow over time. Uh, then your ability to grow wealth will diminish pretty rapidly, right? You can't keep your money in cash. And if you spend it all, that's not going to help much either. So contributing to something is really powerful. The idea that the share market's actually done better is is quite eye-opening for a lot of people. A lot of people find that hard to understand, but there's heaps of information out there about it. The other thing I think that's really important is, and I'm going to use a technical term, but the barriers to entry are so low now for investing in shares. So when I first started, you had to find a stockbroker and they did not like the idea of talking to someone who only had $1,000. And I was like, I have $1,000. This is a lot of money for me. And they're like, you are, you know, an irrelevant, (laughs) just an irrelevance to us, right? You are not going to be exactly our best client, which was fair. I wasn't. Being able to buy shares yourself online for unbelievably low brokerage and to be able to, or an ETF for, you know, next to nothing now when you can get amazing research. I say this all the time. The actual insights and tools you have available to to you now through the most basic trading platform are better than a professional fund manager had in the 90s. You've got algorithms and bar charts happening in the background, which definitely were not available to the average stockbroker 20 years ago. No, and you don't have access to one broker's information and research on a stock. You have access to 10 and you have people giving you ideas about how you want to invest and you can buy the ASX 200 in one trade for 10 bucks. Yeah, it is a completely different universe. So the idea that one asset class is so far out of your reach, property, is really depressing. On the flip side, another asset class is so much more accessible than it's ever been and it gives you fabulous potential for long-term returns. You can accrue it over time. You don't have the same risk of buying one thing and then hoping like hell that it works. So 
even though the story around property is so complex, the story around shares is really, really positive. And anyone who's been around for a while knows that. But if you're young, you're used to being able to access everything via an app immediately. So it's not, you're kind of like, yeah, but hasn't it always been like this? No, it hasn't. This is all new. It's very exciting. They're the same people that don't know what a cassette is. <laughs> so it's there and it is accessible and the quality of data and insights and tools you have is amazing. I think part of the challenge, though, is because you have this extraordinary wealth of information at your fingertips, and it's so easy to access. It can be a bit intimidating, right? You're not a professional stockbroker from the 90s. You are not expected to be able to understand everything that is sitting on a screen in front of you the first time you log in. So that might be a bit of a challenge. It's like you open it up and you're like, I don't know what I just did. <laughs> I've stepped into an alternate universe where I'm watching heat maps and I don't know what that is either. So we've talked a lot about the tools and what you can do and the, the pros of being able to get into the, the market so easily. Now, from your experience... What do you think makes a successful female investor? There might be differences between a successful male, a successful female in investing, but Gemma, what do you think makes a successful investor? So we'll talk a little bit about the gender differences because there is actually very good research about this if you look for it. And the, the seminal paper on it was called Boys Will Be Boys, good title, um, academic paper it was from 1999, so it's old, right? It's not new data, uh, which looked at professional fund managers in the US of whom a very small number of female, most of them are blokes, right? So the 90 plus percent of guys and a small number of women. And they found that on average, the women outperform the men and not just on average, but consistently. And what they found was they do it because they trade less often and they do more research. Blokes, there is this issue of overconfidence, right, in male investors. And you see it particularly in young men where they come in and we've heard all about Reddit and all of these extraordinary places people go to get their information. And it's very blokey and very testosterone fueled and kind of Wild West stuff sometimes. It's at the margin, right? Like if you met half of our investors, they're over 50 and extremely sensible. But there is, but there is this group of, of particularly young guys who, who get really excited about the market and about trading and they blow up all their profits because they didn't bother to do the research. They heard a tip from a mate. They decided they were going to make 1,000% in three weeks. And so this excitement and this enthusiasm, and we know young men are very prone to high-risk behaviour relative to other cohorts in the population. Just ask any insurer, right? They will tell you. Um, there's a reason why premiums for young men are much higher than for everybody else. So guys go in with this sort of greater level of confidence with less information and less research. On average, very important. Not all guys are like this, and I'm sure there are some women who take wild risks as well. Women, because they tend to be more cautious, will do more research on average, generalising. But this is from the data, right? So this is this paper from 1999 saying women on average outperform. Then they've looked at heaps of other cohorts over time. There's a group of Norwegian fund managers. Again, the women outperformed. They looked at Vanguard's uh, 401k plans, which is the equivalent of superannuation. And, and this was hundreds of thousands of members. So this is individuals, not professionals, who are, again, women outperformed men because they didn't panic and sell during a crisis and they didn't buy at the top as often. So the men tended to move in and out of assets more frequently 
The other thing they do is tend to trade away their profits more frequently, which just leads to higher costs, right? So there's a whole series of different papers and they all come to roughly the same conclusion, which is women just tend to be a bit more sensible when they invest. The higher conviction, women generally have higher conviction when they do make a decision and are less likely to back out of that decision if there is some turbulence in the market is what the research suggests. Yes, and in addition to that, because men have this higher tendency to trade their portfolios, they're more likely to buy stuff that blows up and they're more likely to trade away their profits. So they trade so frequently that the brokerage costs tend to outweigh the benefit of any changes that they made. And brokerage is still a cost. There's still roughly about 20 bucks a trade on either side. So if you're only, you're trading, you know, $2,000, then $20 trade, that's still like 2% of your trade. It's still, it's still significant. Yeah, it still matters. And I think timing the market is unbelievably difficult for professionals, let alone for individuals. So we know from the data that the vast majority of professionals will never get it perfectly right. Some of them will get it frequently wrong. And getting that wrong will cost you a hell of a lot more than just sticking with it because women are more likely to just stick with it. So they will have made a decision, I'm going to buy the ASX 200. I'm going to buy the S&P 500. I'm going to buy two bank shares in CSL or whatever it is they've decided to buy. They tend to have thought about that quite a lot and then they just do it and they stick with that decision because they spent the time thinking about it in advance. Whereas a guy, again generalising, who has gone, my mate told me that rare earths are definitely the place to be and then when rare earths blow up goes, oh, well, that was rubbish, I'm going to sell and then rare earths come back and they're like, oh, damn it, I'm not holding it anymore, I sold at the bottom, have a very different experience because they're in this far more uh, kind of gossip-related, um, trend-related approach to investing. Now, this is a small cohort of guys who are right at that margin of trading. So it's certainly not everybody. And if I look at some of our professional investors, we've got some unbelievably sophisticated male investors. So these are all generalisations. But the one thing that guys do is they get started. And then even when they make heaps of stupid decisions, as we were talking about earlier, they learn from them. So you could blow up all your capital at 25 and still be very wealthy by 35 because you learn from those stupid experiences. And I've met heaps of guys in that situation. A lot of the older, more experienced traders and investors we have who are male started really young, making stupid decisions, grew up and started making better decisions. And they're our wealthiest clients, right? So this thing about getting started and learning from your mistakes is relevant for both women and men. We know that women tend to make better decisions, but the most important decision is getting started. So if you don't make that one, the rest of them are irrelevant, right? That's right. And that's so important in terms of understanding what makes a successful investor. It's not always understanding the technicals or always understanding how to read financials, which it's very important to know how to do because you need to know what you're buying and feel comfortable buying it. So from the research and also from what we observe, I guess, in our client base and the people that I speak to, what makes a successful investor is A, someone who gets started in investing. The second thing is knowing what you want to achieve. 
So for a lot of young people, but particularly young men, when they get started, their motivation is to make money as fast as possible. And that comes with the risk of losing money very quickly. <laughs> but at least they knew what they were trying to do. And then they tend to change their goal to make money and leave out the fast as possible bit and start making better decisions. So generally speaking, with the women that I meet, their goal is to invest for something long term whatever that might be. Often they don't have a specific target attached to it. But if you know your goal is to invest for the long term, you're 80 to 90% of the way there. It's then choosing investments that match that profile. And for a lot of women, that step is the most important one, just getting past knowing what it is that you want to achieve, doing the research and coming up with a plan that you can stick to. But step one, getting started is where most of our invest is. Gemma, I think, you know, you've done me a really good favour because I thought I was going to get in a lot of trouble for asking this controversial question. Um, I was, I was going to ask you uh, whether men were better investors than women, but I actually took a lot away from that response. Like, the first thing is, I, you know, I can empathise. Sometimes I can be a bit overconfident. I can do a bit of short trading. I forget about the trading costs. But, you know, the thing I did was I, I took the initiative and I just went for it. And it's almost like, the point that you make is that you can take a couple of qualities from the men, which is take the initiative, get started. And then second, you know, take some of the qualities that made, uh, you know, some women successful, which is, you know, take a long-term approach, sit on the money. And just, if you can sit on your money and forget about it, I think that's a good thing. Um, an interesting quote by uh, Warren Buffett, I think, what was his quote? He said, if you can't think of owning something for 10 years, don't even think about owning for 10 minutes. You know, I think that's a that's a wonderful quote, and that summarizes that investment philosophy of patience extremely, extremely well. Patience is a massive virtue in markets because, as we continue to learn, like weird stuff happens that nobody predicted. So, no matter how good your investment thesis and no matter how good your research, stuff will happen that you did not predict. The one I love that's fairly recent is. I speak to a lot of professional fund managers, mostly blokes, but a lot of women as well. And most of them would have told you last year in January that Sydney Airport was like the most defensive stock you could hold, right? Sydney Airport, amazing, continuous income, brilliant, solid quality, high managed business, well managed business, high quality business. Hang on to that thing. It'll be brilliant forever. Then COVID happened and, you know, their foot traffic dropped by 90%. So it's amazing how risky things can be without your having any anticipation of what those risks might be. And if you don't have a long-term strategy and a long-term plan, that kind of stuff will make you panic, right? Plenty of people do panic in that situation. If you just bought it because someone told you to and then you saw it drop by 50%, you would probably panic and sell. Whereas if you've done your research, you go, it's still a high-quality, well-managed business, right? It will come back eventually. I'm going to hang on to that. You've probably done all right. So it's always interesting to see uh, how people respond, the quality of their thinking before they do the, do the trade or place the investment. You can kind of see it when things change, right, whether they really believe in what they bought or whether they just bought it as a punt and then things change. Very different responses. That leads me to the next question, Gemma, and this is one that sort of gives me goosebumps, makes me feel a little bit sick as well when I think about it. When we think about the gap between the number of men and women investing, 
will that gap, do you think, ever close? And by investing, I mean also investing in the market, not necessarily just because I don't deem putting your money into a TD is an investment that's just a holding account, in my opinion, right now. Ten years ago, it was an investment, but uh, not anymore, and we've talked about that. Do you think the gap between men and women uh, will close up? I sincerely hope so. We have seen an uplift in the number of new accounts from women, not... So we don't get 50-50 in new accounts. Existing accounts is not a particularly good basis to judge this on, right, because many women have not had an opportunity to build wealth at all during their lifetimes. So it's no surprise to anybody that men have substantially more money in retirement, for example, than women. So about two-thirds of the assets held on our platform, by which I mean shares and so on, are held by men. Um, there are a lot of people who consider their assets joint anyway if they're in a couple and so on. So uh, whether or not uh, that's a good judgment, uh, I don't know. It's not going to be absolutely perfect, right? You can't look straight into someone's house and tell, tell exactly who owns what. Um, but for new accounts, it's much higher than a third. And that's really good to see, right? So we know that many more than a third of our new accounts are coming from women and younger women are more likely to invest than, say, 50-year-old women and more likely to open an account. So that's awesome. The concern is it's not 50-50 yet. It's quite a long way off 50-50. And the closer we get to that, the happier we'll be, obviously, one issue I think we do see is women tend to come to trading or to investing a little bit later than guys. And that has a fair bit to do with that high risk behavior that we see from young men. So you see guys opening accounts at the age of 18, right? So you have to be 18 in order to open a trading account and they will open it on their 18th birthday and they're ready to go. Whereas young women might wait till they're 21 or 22. They've got some savings behind them. They're a little bit more conservative. And sometimes that three or four years can be really, really important. They might be the best three or four years in the market in a decade. And so for many young women, we would love to see more young women coming to the market. We want to see more middle-aged women coming to the market. We want to see more women investing across the board. And when and how that happens, um, you know, we also want to help them engage properly. You know, making one decision is great, but you've got to keep doing it. Um, so we hope to see more. We're a long way off closing the gap, unfortunately. Like it's not... It's not going to be 50-50 for a while, but we're certainly closer than we have been in the past. That's a good thing. Which is an improvement, and that's a positive trend that we should take away from. Yes. And the more that we do this kind of stuff, right, have a conversation about it, talk to women directly, because, as I said, the industry is very male-dominated and there's a lot of guys talking. Uh, I always, certainly when I started in the industry, I could never understand why there were specific events for women until I would look around and realise I was the only woman in the room and obviously the only one who didn't care about being the only woman in the room. Like it takes a certain type of person to not care that you're the only woman and clearly I was that weirdo. But other women just want to see other people like them, right, which is fair enough. There's not a lot of blokes who show up to all women events either. So making the industry a little bit more inclusive is nice too. Yeah, I would agree with that. How many times, especially when I was an analyst going to visit companies at, you know, in the boardrooms of 
Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs and so forth, and I would be the only female in there. It didn't like you. It didn't bother me. You need a certain skin for it not to bother you, and I think uh, we, we have that skin. But it's good to see that also changing, and people should know that that I can see in the last five to seven years of the industry, there are definitely more females participating and we have more of a voice. So it's not so male anymore. Yeah, it's certainly getting better. But I think we have to keep working at that, you know, making finance dense and number-based and very dry. I mean, I get terribly frustrated when I see presentations with pictures of shoes for women. Like that just irritates the hell out of me. I love shoes as much as the next person, but it's got nothing to do with shares. Um, (laughs) If I want to know about shoes, I'll go and look at shoes, right? So there's a way of being more inclusive without talking about shoes and finding that middle ground, I think is really important. We have seen a trend with our data that, you know, the number of women has increased. And what you're saying, Gemma, that it's a positive sign that any new, the new accounts that you've seen open, um, you've seen an increase in number of women opening up accounts. And, and that's a positive trend. But I think spot on, Gemma, more work needs to be done to make, um, you know, increase the inclusiveness of women into investing because we've already, we've already articulated why it's important to learn about investing. So Gemma, you know, you've given us some handy tips about how, you know, females can overcome some of the obstacles investing and, and why it's important. So I'm sure there are probably a lot of listeners out there probably thinking to themselves, hmm, how do I start my investment journey? So for those that are looking to start their investment journey, what's one piece of advice that you can give to them? If you are listening to this podcast, you are already thinking about investing and you are already thinking about shares, which is fabulous. If you haven't done it, please go and open an online trading account or find a stockbroker if you would prefer to do it that way or a financial advisor. So there are different ways you can approach this. But the thing I would say about online trading accounts, they're free to open and you can suddenly see this universe of information and insights is a bit of a, maybe a marketing term, right? But share ideas, right? Shares, maybe buy this stock, this stock, and this stock, this is why we think they're good. Or don't buy this, we think it's bad value or sell it or whatever it might be. Simply opening the account, you can set up a watch list, which is just playing with imaginary money. You can do the ASX share trading game, which is also a fabulous way of getting onto it. Exposing yourself to the universe of investing by simply going into it is a really good way to start. I find that it's a little bit like opening your first bank account. You can open the bank account, but unless you can see it in internet banking, frankly, you're probably not paying any attention to it. Once it's on your phone, suddenly it's quite real for a lot of people. You know, so you can open it up and look at it any time and you can start exposing yourself to this universe. The next step is obviously to choose something to invest in and do that. But because it costs nothing to do and you get access to all this amazing information, just opening an account and having a look at the amazing amount of information available to you and picking a few things you want to read, a few things you want to follow, I think is a great start for anyone who's having a lot of trouble kind of getting over that first hurdle. Then that's perfect in terms of talking about getting started. But say you're already in it or you want to get further into it or if you've got three resources, like your top three, we've discussed heaps of resources today. 
and I'm sure some of our listeners have already found them or some of our listeners are yet to find them. But if you had to list your top three resources, Gemma, what would they be? Oh, that's such a good question. (laughs) It depends very much on where you are, I think, on your investing journey, right? So if you are a little way along, say you've bought a couple of ETFs, so you've started a portfolio and you're trying to think about more, one thing you can start doing is reading the financial press daily. So we've got some high-quality sort of financial certainly the AFR, for example, and so on. So that will give you a really good understanding of the major companies in Australia and what they're doing. Alternatively, following sort of the online news as it relates to particular companies. So that's one that keeps you up to date with what the companies themselves are doing. And that's awesome. The other thing you can do is pick one or two financial influencers, I hate that word, but influencers uh, who appeal to you because there are plenty of different ones. There are people who are like, here's my five steps to financial freedom. Just do this. Don't touch anything else. And if that's what you want, follow them. If you want someone who's going to give you stock tips, pick them. You know, so there are a lot of people out there. First of all, you're like you want to make sure it's someone credible and you should be able to work out how credible they are relatively quickly, have a look at who follows them, that kind of stuff. So you want to make sure it's someone who's uh, got a legitimate basis for the advice that they're giving you. But I think following some influences can be very valuable because they're going to regularly give you ideas that you can then act on. And then the third one is if your situation is starting to get complicated, and it might. uh, So the things that tend to, I don't think everybody needs financial advice. There's a lot of people who absolutely could and should do it themselves. But there will come times in your life when you might need advice. And if you're in that situation, please get it rather than guessing. Um, So As you approach retirement, if you've got a complex superannuation scenario, get advice. If you are maybe approaching a divorce, advice can be very useful. Uh, If you're receiving a a benefit from an estate, for example, that's also a good scenario where you might need advice. So if and when it all gets too much or it's a bit overwhelming, I would strongly recommend advice. I would start with getting on top of the press, just choosing a couple of really good quality sources or choose a couple of really good quality influencers. Um, Podcasts are fantastic. I love them. There's a couple of great ones out there. Um, And then finally, if there are things that are beyond your expertise and you're struggling with them, advice is a good path to go down. Now, I'm a bit of a reader and um, this is not a plug by any means, but for me, that somebody that has a bit of financial background and likes to read up every day, one free source in the Australian markets, which is great because a lot of fund managers and experts contribute to it, is Livewire, um, and that's free to access. But that's just one out there. Um, there are plenty of other sources. But like you said, there's so many free sources and just pick a format that suits you and a level that suits you. Yeah, so Ausbiz is another one which is a free streaming app that's also uh, on the Channel 7 app on your television where they have experts on all day. It's very similar to Livewire. For many people that is like it's extraordinary, the, quant- the quantity and the quality of what you're provided with via those sorts of channels is amazing. The only thing I would say is if you are easily overwhelmed, don't do those ones. 
because <laughs> there is just a deluge of information and you will probably pick out two or three people on those channels who you really like that you want to keep going back to. You can literally open Livewire in the morning or Ausbiz and have three different people give an opinion on the same stock and one's a buy, a hold and a sell, right? So don't overwhelm yourself if you are still learning. Yeah, it's definitely know where you're at, pick where you're at. And if you feel like you're being overwhelmed, it's probably a good time to take a step back and try something else rather than persist with a source that doesn't serve you. Gemma and Anastasia, those were some really interesting tips. I mean, I I wrote some things down. First of all, reading the press, um, getting some information on major companies. Um, The press can include things like Livewire and Ausbiz. Also, if you're confused, don't be afraid to speak to a financial advisor. They can be a valuable source of information um, and also podcasts as, as well. So that's one of my personal favorites. I listen to yours, Gemma. Um, and now I listen to our own Ideas Exchange podcast. But if you search in investing tips on podcasts, you'll find countless resources. But the one thing that you mentioned that really stood out was a point about financial influences. Um, when I get home, I'm going to follow Scott Pape, the IE, the writer of The Barefoot Investor. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. And I want you to thank you, Gemma, so much for sharing your wonderful insight. I think time's actually flown so quickly. Um, and I hope that some of our listeners have taken a lot out of it. And we look forward to having you back on the future, Gemma. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I also have to thank my special co-host, Anastasia. Thank you for letting me rope you in with this special episode. I also can't wait to bring you back down the road. Thanks, Marty. Thanks for the invite. It's been a lot of fun and I look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Visit the ASX website, asx.com.au and register for the next Investor Day, our premier education event, providing timely market insights and ideas from a range of industry experts. ASX Limited ABN 9800862469 and its related bodies corporate ASX makes content available for podcast content and the content may be downloaded on these conditions. ASX grants a non-exclusive license to download the content for private and non-commercial use only. You may not use the content for any other purpose including without limitation distribution to a third party or implying a connection between you or any third party and ASX, its offices employees or contractors. The views, opinions or recommendations of the author or speaker in the content are solely those of the author or speaker and do not in any way reflect the views, opinions, recommendations of ASX. The content is provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from an Australian Financial Services licensee before making any investment decisions. ASX does not give any representation or warranty with respect to the accuracy, reliability, completeness or currency of the content. To the extent permitted by law, ASX and its employees, officers and contractors are not liable for any loss or damage arising in any way, including by way of negligence, from or in connection with any information provided or omitted or from anyone acting or refraining to act in reliance on this information. 